Thank you for being here, and if you're watching us online, thank you as well for joining us. And if you're in the overflow room, thank you for joining us as well. In the 1980s, uh, when illegal drug use uh, reached almost epidemic proportions in this country, a national nonprofit known as the Partnership for a Drug-Free America began to air a series of commercials uh, targeting kids and teenagers about the dangers of drug use. If you are somewhere north of 40 years old, uh, you'll remember their most famous commercial. Um, in it, there is a kitchen, there's a stove, there's a frying pan on the stove, and there is a hand holding an egg. The camera zooms in on the hand holding the egg. The narrator says, this is your brain. The egg is then cracked on the frying pan. The yolk is dispersed into the pan. It begins to sizzle. The narrator says, this is your brain on drugs. And it ends with, any questions? Some of you were around back then. Yes, you remember. That was undoubtedly their most famous commercial. They had another series of commercials that all had the same theme. Uh, in one of them, there is a young man who is running, and he appears to be running on a track. Um, and a voice of a young child says, when I grow up, I want to be a track star. And then the camera zooms out and there is a police officer reaching for this young man who has apparently done something wrong and the police officer is trying to apprehend him. Uh, and another one there is a young girl who is dancing around, a teenage girl, and voice of an even younger girl says, when I grow up, I want to be a ballerina. And then the camera zooms out and this teenage girl falls onto the floor in a heap and it's apparent that she has passed out from drug use. And then in another one, there is a lady who is giving CPR to someone, and vo the voice of a young girl says, when I grow up, I want to be a nurse. And then the camera zooms out, and it's apparent that both of them have been using drugs, and this man has OD'd on drugs, and she's trying to save his life. And all of those commercials end with the same tagline. No one says, when I grow up, I want to be a druggie. And yet, that's exactly what happens. No one makes decisions intending for life to completely unravel. And yet, that's what happens. No one says, hey, I'm going to choose to go down this path because I know it will completely destroy my life. And yet, that is exactly what happens. In the passage we're looking at today, we will get to see the almost last chapter of a life that starts off with the best of intentions starts off very strong, but then because of some choices that are made, ends up in a very tragic way. Now, you can see the title of the message today is The Liar, the Witch, and the Robe. That is a takeoff of C.S. Lewis's famous work, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, today, we will see a lion king, a real live witch, and a ghost in a robe. You're excited, aren't you? I can see it on your face. Let's get started. 1 Samuel chapter 28. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there. 1 Samuel is found in your Old Testament just after the little book of Ruth, which comes after Judges. Um, and if you get to 2 Samuel, you've gone too far. If you're new here today, let me take just a minute and catch you up to where we are. We've been in a series called Sins and Stones where we have been looking at the life of King David. Uh, David lived about a thousand years before Christ, about 3,000 years ago, and David was the second king over Israel. The first king over Israel was a man named Saul. 
Saul's reign started off strong. He had a heart for the Lord. He was doing things right. But then over time, his heart began to drift to the point that God rejected him as king and rejected his entire family line as king. So God uh, made it possible for another individual uh, named David, who was outside of Saul's family line, to be anointed as the next king. The only problem was that David did not take the throne immediately. Saul was still king. He was still still ruling, even though David was the king who would eventually take the throne. Today, we're going to see the spotlight move off of David and onto King Saul. This is toward the end of his life. It is toward the end of his reign as king. And we will see how a series of decisions that he makes ends up with a tragic, tragic end. So again, this is 1 Samuel 28. Uh, We will start with verse 3. Here's what we read. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his hometown of Ramah. So if you've been here with, with us in this series, you know that Samuel was the prophet who essentially ruled Israel before Saul was king. Samuel was the one who anointed Saul as king. Samuel was the one who was there when Saul started off strong and watched as Saul began to drift away from the Lord. Samuel was the prophet who then went and anointed David to be the next king who was outside of Saul's family line. Here the writer reminds us that Samuel has died. Samuel is dead. When Samuel was in office, when he was alive, he was the one who was able to keep Saul in check, somewhat at least. Others could not confront Saul when he made bad decisions. When Saul began to drift away from the Lord because he was king, no one else would confront Saul except for Samuel. Samuel as prophet was not under Saul's rule, and so Samuel could go to Saul and say, what? are you doing? And the writer here says, Samuel's dead. No one's around to confront Saul. No one is around to straighten Saul out. Samuel is dead and all of Israel has mourned the loss of Samuel. Then it says, Saul has expelled, had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. A medium and a spiritist were essentially the same. They were individuals who consulted with the dead. Um, They were the modern-day equivalent of psychics. Um, In in your Bible, at the very top, it may have a title that says, Saul and the Witch at Endor. But when you read through the text, depending on your translation, you probably will not see the word witch. And witch is really not the best image for you and I to have. This was not an individual who wore a pointy hat or rode a broomstick, or made spells with potions. This was not that kind of witch. Think of psychic. Mediums were those who consulted with the dead. And their practice was expressly forbidden by God. So Saul kicked all the mediums out of Israel, which was good except for what we will read about later. Okay, Verse 4. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem while Saul gathered Israel and set up camp at Gilboa. So the Philistines were the archenemy of the Israelites. Israel was always battling the Philistines. And here the text says 
that the Philistines set up camp at Shunem. Without getting into all the details of the geography, what happened here is the Philistine army came and took over this town where they could then travel south and take over a main trading route that went through Israel. If the Philistines were successful, it would destroy Israel economically. And so Saul gathered his forces and they set up camp at Gilboa to go and to confront the Philistines. Verse 5, when Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid and terror filled his heart. So he confronts this large Philistine army. He sees the size of the army and he is afraid. He, terror fills his heart when he sees the army. There was a point in Saul's life when he would not have been afraid. Earlier in his life, had this happened, Saul would have said to his army, boys, it's time to saddle up, go ride and take care of some business. The Philistines are in our land. This is our land, not their land. This is the land that God gave to us. God is on our side. Let's go drive the Philistines out. And he would have led the Israelites to go and remove the Philistines from their land. But at this point, Saul has left the Lord. He is no longer under the umbrella of the Lord's protection. And he sees the size of this Philistine army and terror fills his heart. So, verse 6, he inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him. By dreams or Urim or prophets, he prays to God, what should I do? What should I do? The Philistines are breathing down our necks. What should I do? And God does not answer. It says by dreams or Urim or prophets. Urim um, was something like a stone that they used. Often it was paired with a thing called a thumen. And in the Old Testament, you see the Urim and the thumen used together by priests. Um, who would take these stones and they would use them in some way to determine the Lord's will. The best analogy is it's like rolling dice. However, they use them in the context of priests in a worship service, praying to the Lord and asking for God's will. In other words, don't go home and roll dice to determine God's will for your life. That is not the best practice. Saul asked, God would not answer. So verse 7. Saul then said to his attendants, find me a woman who is a medium so I may go and inquire of her. Wait a second, Saul. You just kicked all the mediums out of Israel and now you're asking for a medium. What's going on here, Saul? Saul knew this was wrong. This is how far his heart had drifted from the Lord. He knew this was wrong. He kicked all the mediums out of Israel and essentially here, this is what Saul was saying. The rules apply to you, but not to me. I need a medium. I need to go and inquire of a medium to figure out what I need to do next. So he says, he says to his men, go and find a medium. Well, Saul, you kicked them all out of Israel. Yeah, 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 but I know there's an underground market here. There's a black market of mediums. You go and find them. Where is the black market? Where? Are there some mediums still in Israel? There is one in Endor, they say. Now, Endor was located very close to where the Philistine army was hanging out. And these guys know, hey, yeah, there is this black market. There is a medium, and she is located in Endor. It's going to be dangerous to go there. You're getting very close to the Philistines, but there's one in Endor. 
Okay, by the way, when I was a kid growing up, in the afternoons on TBS, they played reruns of shows from the 60s and 70s. So if you're about my age, you probably remember going home, turning on TBS, and you got to watch Gilligan's Island and I Dream of Jeannie and the Brady Bunch. All those came on along with a show called Bewitched. Anyone remember Bewitched? It's about a witch who marries a mortal and all the adventures of you know, their life because she's a witch and he's a mortal. Do you remember the mother's name of the witch, the mother-in-law of the main character? Hendora, yeah. Back then in Hollywood, writers actually read their Bible. They got that name <laughs> from this passage. Name was Endora. Verse 8. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes, and at night he and two men went to the woman. So he's disguised. Why? A couple of reasons here. One, the Philistine army is close by. If they're going to Endora and a battalion of Philistine soldiers discovers them, they need to appear to be just weary travelers, not the king going with two attendants. The other reason is this was illegal. Going to a medium was illegal. Her practice was illegal. So he has to disguise himself so she will not know who it is. So he goes to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one I name. So here's Saul going to the medium saying, hey, I need you to do this thing that you're not supposed to do that's illegal, that God has said do not do. I need you to do it for me. Verse 9. But the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done. He has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? Here's what she's saying. Look, I'll do this thing for you because I really need the money. I need the business right now because this whole psychic thing is illegal and I'm, I'm hurting for business. But Saul has made this illegal. I need some kind of assurance from you that I will not be punished for doing this. That's what Saul does. Verse 10, Saul swore to her by the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. This was an oath on Saul's part, that nothing will happen to you, and I promise you that. This is a guarantee. You will not be punished. Then the woman asked, whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. Now, here the woman does not know that it's Samuel the prophet. He just says Samuel, and so she will go to work to bring up Samuel, the one that he's talking about. Again, the best image to get here, I'm going to date myself, but it comes from the old movie Ghost with Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore, Demi Moore, I never know which it is. In that old movie, Whoopi Goldberg plays a medium. She is a psychic in the movie. And at first, she's this con artist, and people come to her, and she's just conning them out of, out of money. But eventually, she's able to talk with the character that Patrick Swayze plays. And in that movie, individuals come to her, and they say, I need you to talk to a relative of mine. And she'll say, well, who? They'll say, well, Grandpa Harry. Okay, Grandpa Harry, are you there? That's what this medium would do, was doing here. Basically speaking with the one that Saul had named, even though she did not know exactly who it was. Here's what's next. Verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? 
You are Saul. So she calls out for Samuel, not knowing which Samuel it, it was. Samuel appears and she recognizes him. This is Samuel the prophet. Once she recognizes Samuel the prophet, then she recognizes Saul. You're King Saul. This is Samuel the prophet. You have tricked me. You have deceived me. Why have you done this? Here's Saul's answer. The king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. What does he look like, he asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. Okay, in case you missed it, this is the last part of the title. A lion king, a witch in Endor, and a ghost wearing a robe. The liar, the witch, and the robe. An old man wearing a robe is coming up. Then Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Okay, I know what you're thinking here. All right, a ghost is coming up, and this woman is able to call Samuel up. Where is he coming from? Where does Samuel just come from and appear? In the Old Testament, the idea of the afterlife was a place called Sheol. Sheol had two realms. There was the realm of the righteous and the realm of the unrighteous. Samuel here would have come up from Sheol, from the place of his eternal rest, and would have appeared to this this woman, this medium who had called him up. One of the mistakes that we make is sometimes we will read a story or an account in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, and we will believe, well, because this happened then, then there is a principle that we can apply for all times. Be careful not to do that. In this story, God allowed Samuel to come up and appear. That does not mean that we can then draw the conclusion that we can go to a medium and get anyone that we want to appear. Samuel, the Apostle Paul, Grandpa Harry, whoever, you can't just say, well, because it happened here, it can happen now. Could it happen now? I don't know, but I'm certainly not going to try, and neither should you. So Samuel comes up, Saul bows down. Verse 15, Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Why have you called me up for my eternal rest? Saul says, because I am in great distress. The Philistines are fighting against me and God has departed from me. He no longer answers me either by prophets or by dreams. So I have called on you to tell me what to do. In other words, Samuel, when you were alive and I had a problem like this, I could come to you and say, hey, help, I need to know what to do. The Philistines are gathering their forces. They are strong. They've got more men than we've got. Samuel, what am I supposed to do? Go and talk to the Lord and tell me what I'm supposed to do. But Samuel, you are dead and the Lord has departed from me. And notice what Samuel, uh, Saul does not say here. Saul doesn't say, the Lord has departed from me, and I probably need to fix that. I probably need to get this whole relationship with God straightened out. He doesn't say that. He says, the Lord has departed from me, and because of that, he no longer answers me. I cry out to God, I need something, like an answer on what to do. Help fighting the Philistines, and he won't talk to me, but I won't fix the root of the problem, which is the fact that God has departed from me because I have rebelled against God. Saul doesn't say that. 
He says, Samuel, I've called you up because I need advice. I need you to tell me what to do. Here's Samuel's advice to him. Samuel said, why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? In other words, Saul, you have drifted so far away from God that God now looks at you and says, you're my enemy. You, you have drifted that far away from the Lord. The Lord has done what he predicted through me. Samuel, at a certain point, saw that Saul had chosen this path that was going to lead to his destruction. And in the midst of that, here's what Samuel predicted. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Samuel was the one who went and anointed David to be the next king. David was not part of Saul's family line. This was highly unusual, but that's how far Saul had drifted. And he says, because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. So here's why this has happened, Saul. In general, you have not obeyed the Lord. Your heart has turned from him. You have ignored what the Lord has told you to do. And specifically, if you want an example, it is when God told you to go and destroy the Amalekites. You did not do it. God said, destroy this town entirely, and you did not carry out that command of God. Now, that, that's a, a passage. It's found in 1 Samuel 15. It's a little bit hard for us, and it's really a sermon for another time, and one I actually preached several years ago. Um, God had a good reason for Saul to completely destroy this town. And Saul ignored what God told him to do. Samuel says, you want God's help, but you have abandoned God. You have forgotten about him. And now you're crying out for his help. It's too late. Then Samuel closes with this. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines. And tomorrow... You and your sons will be with me. In other words, you and your sons will die. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Now, in your Bible, is three chapters later, but chronologically, it was the next day that Saul and his sons died in a battle, including the oldest son of Saul, Jonathan, who was the heir apparent to the throne. The remainder of this chapter is Saul becoming overwhelmed with grief, passing out, fainting, becoming weak over this news that the next day he and his sons were going to die in this battle. So what do we do with a passage like this? We read through this passage. There's a lot that's interesting. What do we do? How do we take a passage like this and apply it to our own lives? Let me give you four questions to ask in regards to this passage. And this is found on your message map if you have it with you. Number one, what do I want my story to be? Think about the story of your life. What do you want your story to be? When we read a passage like this, when we read the story of Saul, we're able to see the complete story. Saul begins, has a heart for the Lord, is doing what God asked him to do. Then he makes one decision and another decision and another decision, and it leads him down this path to this sad, tragic ending. The conclusion of the story is awful. And all of us would read a story like this and we would say, I don't want that. I don't want that to be my story. I don't want the last chapter 
of the story that's written about me to, to end like that. See, right now we have chapters that are yet to be written. And so often what happens is we think, well, I know that sin can lead me down this awful path, but I think I can flirt with it a little bit. I think I can handle it. I think that, yeah, it's destroyed all these other lives, but I think I'll be okay. I think somehow I'll manage, and my story will not have this tragic end. And yet time after time after time, we see how in others, that's exactly what happens. And they don't intend to go down that path. They never plan to go down that path. And yet slowly, bad choice after bad choice after bad choice, and they end up with this awful ending of their lives. In his book, Finishing Strong, Steve Farrar has this great quote about sin. It says, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you're willing to pay. So often we think, no, it's okay. I'll manage. I'll be fine. It won't destroy me. This quote so often applies to our lives. It takes us to a place that we never intended to go. So what do you want the end of your story to look like? Whatever that ending is, back up from that and make decisions now that will get you to that ending. That's question number one. Question number two is this. Who is your shepherd? Who is on the throne of your life? Who is in charge? Who is ruling in your heart? So here's the thing about Saul. Saul had been given incredible talents by God. Israel, at a certain point, cried out for a king. They said, all the nations around us have a king. We want a king. We want to be like everybody else. Samuel said, no, you don't want a king. They said, no, we really do. And when Samuel anointed Saul to be king, everyone in Israel said, that's the guy that I envisioned to be king. Head taller than everybody else, strong, brave, courageous, a fierce fighter. In every way, Saul looked the part of a king. He had been given that kind of talent and ability uh, from the Lord, which was great, except it went to Saul's head. Saul began to believe what others were saying about him. Saul began to think, you know what? I'm really that good. I've got it handled. I, I can take care of any situation that comes my way. I'm in control of my life. He would say things like this. I am my own shepherd. I don't need another shepherd. I can handle life. He would say, I am the master of my destiny. I control my future. Or to quote one 90s theologian, if there's a problem, go, I'll solve it. (laughs) Check out the hook. In the 90s, I was cool. (laughs) Not so much now. That, that was Saul's mentality. I'm in control. I can manage. I don't need the Lord or anybody else. Now, David, in contrast, had been given so much by the Lord. Talented, brave. This Dave was a good, David was a good-looking guy. David had so much, and yet notice what David said. He said, the Lord is my shepherd. I, I'm not my own shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. He cares for me. David said... You, Lord, are a shield around me. I'm not my own shield. God, I I need you to protect me. David said, I seek you with all my heart. God, you rule in 
on the throne in, the, in my own heart. God, you are in charge. Who is your shepherd? It's easy to think, you know, I've got it under control and I control my destiny and I'm the one that's in charge. And if you think that, you're an absolute fool. It will take you down a bad path if you think you're in ultimate control of your life. Question number three. Am I asking for God's blessings instead of God? That is what is so apparent in this passage. Saul comes... (laughs) to Samuel, and he's like, I need God to answer me. I need God to give me uh, direction on what I'm supposed to do about this Philistine army. I need God's protection. I need God to, to help us get in there and whip the Philistines. And time after time, Saul was coming to God saying, I need this, I need this, I need this. Like he was going to a genie in a bottle saying, hey, give me my three wishes, and then I can send you on your way. He was after God's blessings, but Saul had no interest in God himself. If that is your prayer life, if it basically boils down to a wish list, God protect and God do this and God show me this. If that is your prayer life, then listen to me. You are missing out on the biggest blessing of all. And that is God himself. If you're just asking for stuff from God, for God to fix your situation, for God to show you what you're supposed to do next, if that's all you're asking for, then you're missing out on the biggest blessing of God, which is God himself. Spend time just enjoying the relationship with God. That, That is the greatest gift that God can give to you. Don't treat like Saul did God like just this great gumball dispenser in the sky. Every time you go to pray, you're putting a quarter in saying, I need, I need, I need. Spend time in relationship with the Lord. And then finally, here's the last thing. Do I have a healthy fear of the Lord? When you come to a passage like this, it is easy to spend a lot of time reading through this passage and debating all the elements of the passage on a very academic level. In fact, in your home team or your connection class, You could get in there and you could read a passage like this and you could spend 30 minutes or an hour just asking questions about the passage that are really interesting but do not apply to our lives. Like, was Saul really saved? Well, I mean, he started off strong and if we believe once saved, always saved. Well, yeah, I I guess he was. Well, really, was he saved to begin with? Well, I, I don't know. You could spend 30 minutes on that one. What was Sheol like? Where did Samuel come from? Can we still do that today? I don't know. You could spend another 30 minutes debating all of that, and you keep it all on an academic level without asking the question that so pierces our heart and our soul. That question is this. How much of Saul is in me? How much of Saul is in you? I mean, we should come to a passage like this And it should sober us a little bit and cause us to wake up and go, wait a second, am I on the right track? Dale Davis, who is a pastor, wrote in a blog this about this passage. He says, so what do you do with this text? Let it frighten you. Don't try to tidy things up with queries about whether Saul was really saved. The last time we see Saul here, he is walking out into the night cut off from God and His Word. It's meant to be scary, and that's not necessarily bad. 
"'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." That line from the classic song, Amazing Grace. When we come to a passage like this, it, it ought to cause us to go, God, don't let that happen to me. And God, show me if I'm headed down that path. And God, help me to choose you. And there may be some of you in here today, and right now, you've got a lot of Saul in you. And you're headed down a path that you never thought you would go down. You never intended to go down. And I hope, I pray that this passage this morning will sober you up and you will say, no, I'm turning back to the Lord. No further, no more steps in that direction. I'm not going any further away from God. I am turning back. Now, I pray that this text will cause you to wake up from whatever sin it is that has captured your heart and to say, no more. I'm running back to the arms of the Lord.